This is the scene in northeastern Ukraine after a Russian missile attack killed 51 people, including a six-year-old who were all attending a wake for a soldier who died in what is now becoming the 18th-month-long war in Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky is in Spain trying to secure military assistance from... Give me one second. I'll be right back. Hi. Hi. Ukrainian President Zelensky is in Spain trying to secure military assistance from Western nations. He called the attack deliberate, insisting there was absolutely no way Russia could not have known that it was a cafe where the wake was being held. There was no way, he says, they could not have... There's no way it could have been a military installation. He says the Russians knew it was not a military installation. Ukraine's deputy interior minister said on Thursdays that since the Russian invasion, 26,000 Ukrainians have become unaccounted for, not dead, not injured, not listed as refugees, 26,000 Ukrainians. They don't know where they went. While Congress is essentially shut down until there is a new speaker who can pass a 2024 budget. There is no movement on that $24 billion Ukrainian supplemental that will have to wait perhaps until the end of November before Congress can get its act together. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, he's a socialist from Portugal, condemned the missile attacks. He said, quote, attacks against civilians and civilian infrastructure are prohibited under international humanitarian law, and they must stop immediately. Germany this week pledged delivery of Patriot missile air defense systems to prevent attacks like these. Zelensky says that he secured more assistance from Spain, Italy, France, Germany, Great Britain, all of whom have contributed a greater share of their gross domestic product to Ukraine than America has. Steve Scalise is the number two leader in the House. Well, he was before Kevin McCarthy was fired as speaker back on Tuesday. Well, Steve Scalise is emerging as the odds-on favorite to defeat House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan in the race for Speaker, a race that is scheduled to begin next Tuesday. Scalise has become an increasingly beloved member of the Republican caucus as he battles blood cancer, but mostly because he's a prodigious fundraiser, having doled out $170 million over the past decade to Republican candidates. And from what I understand, that is essentially how you become speaker. You buy the votes with campaign contributions. Also working to Steve Scalise's advantage is a deep animus still felt for Kevin McCarthy, who was reportedly throwing his weight behind Jim Jordan. Aides to McCarthy have been working the phones, encouraging members to vote for Jim Jordan. Scalise and McCarthy have not gotten along going all the way back to the days of Speaker Paul Ryan, when both Scalise and Jordan felt they should succeed Ryan when he stepped down. Well, McCarthy beat Scalise, and Scalise 
especially his staff, resented that. There's also reports that a deep-rooted antipathy for Kevin McCarthy has now washed over the entire Republican caucus since his defeat on Tuesday. And if he attempts to give his blessing to Jim Jordan, that would most certainly backfire in Scalise's favor. Jim Jordan has also done a pretty good job himself alienating the Republican caucus. He's rankled and alpha-dogged way too many members. And most importantly, Scalise, unlike Scalise, Jim Jordan is not a remarkable fundraiser. He's focused way too much on the infighting rather than working the phones and creating relationships with wealthy donors. One possible ace in Jim Jordan's jacketless sleeve is Donald Trump, who reportedly adores Jim Jordan. If you remember, Jordan was an early defender of Trump and was talking with him on the morning of January 6, 2021. The January 6 committee subpoenaed Jim Jordan to testify and tell them what exactly he and Trump had planned for that day. But Jim Jordan refused to respond to that subpoena. He called it unconstitutional. Kevin McCarthy was also subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. He ignored it, along with Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, and Mo Brooks of Alabama. They all refused to discuss what exactly they knew about January 6th with the January 6th committee. These are bad guys. They're really bad. Scalise, however, not involved. His hands are clean when it comes to January 6th. Republican House members Marjorie Taylor Greene and Troy Nels say they will nominate Donald Trump to become the next speaker. According to the Constitution, anyone can be speaker, except for some reason Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy can't be speaker somehow. But anyone can be speaker. You don't have to be elected to Congress. Trump on Wednesday dismissed the invitation. Then on Thursday backtracked, saying he would be willing to serve temporarily. There are two problems with that scenario. According to the current rules, Republicans are not allowed to elect anyone who is under criminal indictment. Trump has four separate criminal (laughs) indictments. Another possible drawback to Trump Becoming a speaker is he has no idea how a bill becomes law. Four years in office and all he did was cut taxes for the rich. On Thursday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was asked what he thought about Trump becoming speaker. And Trump said and Schumer said, quote, no, thanks. We're good. That's kind of funny. No, thanks. We're good. Then he added, we've seen a Trump rally at the Capitol already. It's pretty good. Pretty funny. So Matt Gates toppled Kevin McCarthy. And where does that leave Matt Gates? The only person more despised than Kevin McCarthy within the Republican caucus is Matt Gates. It's no secret. This is not what Republicans wanted. So next week could be an even bigger disaster for the party. Let me make a prediction, because if I predict something, it won't happen. So let me predict that Steve Scalise will unite the party. This is my prediction. And since I'm wrong, you can relax. 
I predict Steve Scalise will unite the Republican caucus and will usher in an era of peace between the warring factions within the Republican Congress. He will send a signal to the American people that, yes, in fact, Republicans can govern, which will result in Republicans not just keeping the House in 2024, but taking back the Senate. That's my prediction. So you can relax. You don't have to worry about that happening. Anyway, back to Matt Gates. He's uh, hated. And there's no greater fury than a domestic squabble. Republicans fight with Democrats, and it does get vicious, but it's the natural order of things. But when Republicans fight with one another, it gets much uglier because it's personal. Gates is perceived as betraying the entire party, especially the Republican members whose seats are not secure, right? There's only a five-vote majority in the House. There has been a House ethics investigation that has been held in abeyance looking into Matt Gates. They were moving slowly on it just to see if they were going to need it, if Matt Gates was going to play ball or not. Turns out they need it. And uh, they don't like anybody freelancing. So the gloves are off and the knives are out. Here is Republican Senator from Oklahoma, Mark Wayne Mullen. He's a Republican, and you might remember him as the D-bag who challenged the president of the Teamsters to a fistfight. Mullen's a D-bag, but he's looking for a fight, and here he is drawing first blood. You got to think about this guy. Um, this is a guy that didn't have that the media didn't give a time of day to after he was accused of sleeping with an underage girl. And there's a reason why no one and the conference came and defended him because we had all seen the videos he was showing on the House floor that all of us had walked away of the girls that he had slept with. He'd brag about how he would crush ED medicine and, and, and chase it with, um, with an energy drink so he could go all night. This is obviously before he got married. And so when that accusation came out, no one defended him, and then no one on the media would give him a time of the day. All of a sudden, he found fame because he opposed the Speaker of the House back in November. Matt Gates, from what we hear, is going to leave Washington, go back to Florida and run for governor. Mitch McConnell is the minority leader in the Senate. He's a Republican who wants to get funding to Ukraine as soon as possible. And he wants a 2024 budget passed before the November 17th deadline. He commented on McCarthy's ouster, speaking very highly of the man, then adding. I have no advice to give. Uh, to House Republicans, except one. I hope whoever the next speaker is gets rid of the motion to vacate. I think it makes the speaker's job impossible. And the American people expect us to have a functioning government. Functioning government. Matt Gates is MAGA. And we know that in the lead up to McCarthy's expulsion, he had been on the phone with Donald Trump, who was advising him to blow it all up, take a wrecking ball to the system, deny the American people a functioning government, which is what McConnell says the American people want. But MAGA is different. MAGA is not helping the Republicans. They're not helping anybody but themselves. They are not helping vulnerable Republican Congress people who are in vulnerable districts. And more importantly, 
in swing states where more and more state Republican parties are on the verge of financial ruin. And this could end up hurting Donald Trump. The Economist magazine report uh, reports uh, that they conducted a study on the financial health of state Republican Party committees in the seven key battleground states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Georgia. The economists found that when the committees, when these state Republican committees are run by far-right Trump-supporting MAGA people, the donations dry up. In Michigan, Arizona, and Wisconsin, far-right MAGA Republicans have assumed leadership. And you can see from this chart that their fundraising lags the Democratic Party's fundraising by overwhelming margins. Take a look at Arizona, where MAGA Republicans censured the Republican House Speaker Rusty Bowers after Bowers refused to support Donald Trump's 2020 efforts to overturn the election results in that state. Since January of this year, the Democratic Party outraised the Republican Party in Arizona. The Democratic Party raised close to a million dollars. Republicans in Arizona have barely been able to scrape together less than $200,000. In Michigan, where the Republican Party meetings have degenerated into shoving matches between MAGA Republicans, the Democrats have raised close to $1.6 million this year, while the Republicans have gotten, I don't know, what is that, $600,000? This is Donald Trump dragging down the party that he owns. This money, by the way, that goes to the state committees It doesn't really go to Donald Trump. It's there to help his down-ballot candidates. They need this money. They're not getting it. Democrat Adam Frisch last year came within 500 votes of unseating Republican Congresswoman from Colorado, Lauren Boebert. And we just learned that his campaign so far this year has raised $3.4 million in the last quarter giving him so far a war chest of $4.3 million. That is a lot of money with an election more than a year away. That's a lot of money to have and to spend in Colorado. That goes a long way. What makes this even more impressive is he got this money from roughly 100,000 individual donors writing checks that averaged $32 each. $5 donations, they make a difference. Bobert has thrown her support for Speaker behind Jim Jordan, which may not have been the best tactical move, considering he's now uh, running against Scalise. Scalise is the cash cow, and she needs as much money as possible. Jim Jordan, she's throwing her support behind Jim Jordan for Speaker. He can't dole out the cash the way Steve... Uh, Scalise can, and she needs as much money as possible to combat an historical level of negative publicity. This is Arizona's Senator Kirsten Sinema, who was elected five years ago as a Democrat. Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny came on this show. He had nothing nice to say about her on day one. He warned that she was going to be trouble. He said she's not a real Democrat. And as usual, Howie Klein 
was absolutely right. This year, Kristen Sinema left the Democratic Party, became an independent. A lot of people think she's going to be tough to beat if the Democrats run somebody against her, because as an independent, supposedly she appeals to both Republicans and centrist Democrats. That's the conventional wisdom. But Congressman Ruben Gallego is an Iraqi war veteran. He's a Democrat. And he announced at the start of this year that he would be running for her Senate seat in 2024. Now, nobody was quite sure what Chuck Schumer would do because he still needs Kristen Sinema, even though she's no longer in the Democratic caucus. He still needs her, even though she, along with Democrat Joe Manchin, tanked or pared down a lot of the Biden administration's ambitious legislative agenda. If uh, Schumer starts raising money for somebody like Gallego uh, or any other Democratic challenger, he runs the risk of pushing Cinema even further away from his caucus. But Congressman Ruben Gallego announced his third quarter fundraising, and he brought in a staggering $3 million. That's a lot of money in Arizona. A lot. So keep an eye on this race. If Ruben Gallego can continue to raise money at this pace, you're going to see the Democratic leadership, Chuck Schumer, more likely to risk alienating cinema and start throwing national money at Gallego, especially as we go into the second fundraising quarter of 2024. So if you're an American citizen and you have some cash lying around, you might consider voting with it by endorsing candidates like Gallego or Adam Frisch, who's running against Lauren Boebert. Uh, remember, uh, Adam Frisch in Colorado brought in a record haul last quarter with, what was it, $32 as the average donation. So $5 makes a difference. 36% of of Alabama is black. 30, I'm sorry, 30% of Alabama is black, yet they send six Republicans to Congress and only one Democrat. We all know that the black people, the black voters are the backbone of the Democratic Party. So if one third of Alabama is black, how is it possible that one seventh of their congressional caucus is Democrat? Well, thanks to gerrymandering. A federal court, however, with the blessing of our Supreme Court, believe it or not, has rewritten Alabama's voting map. It looks like they've now created a second congressional district in Alabama that will be more likely to elect a Democrat in 2024. That means an extra Democrat will be going to Washington from Alabama. Because of gerrymandering, Alabama was able to create one congressional district that lumped all the black people together. And they drew the maps and they guarantee that Alabama would only send one Democrat to Congress. As I said, this is incredibly unfair since black people make up nearly one third of the state. But on Thursday, it looks like the courts have permanently redrawn the map, or at least until the next census in 2030, they've redrawn the map, creating 
Another heavily black district, which more than guarantees a second Democrat will be going to Washington after the 2024 elections. Now, this is important, and it's one of the reasons Republicans are going to punish Matt Gates. Maps are being redrawn right now all around the country. In Georgia, Florida, here in New York, there are as many as 12 seats that are being changed through uh, redistricting. And most of those 12 seats will go from red to blue. So the Republicans only have a five-vote majority, and the courts are redrawing the maps. Republicans could not afford what happened to them on Tuesday, and they're blaming Matt Gates. So pay attention to that ethics investigation. It will be deliciously salacious, right? That is something to pay attention to. It's uh, from what I've read, it's a lot worse than we know about Matt Gates. So twice in one day, a shirtless man came to Wisconsin State Capitol in Madison carrying a gun and demanding to see the Democratic governor, Tony Evers. This was on Wednesday. The man showed up with a handgun and a dog on a leash and insisted on seeing the governor. Well, he was arrested the first time, then released on bail. Hours later, he returned with an assault rifle, whereupon he was permanently arrested. Joshua Plesnik reportedly wanted to talk to the governor about the plight of men being the victims of domestic abuse. And who better to be allowed to get their hands on an assault weapon than men who believe that men are too often the victims of domestic abuse? This is the mop-up for October 6, 2023. I'm David Feldman coming to you from New York City. Please like this video so I remain in your feed And if you're not a subscriber to my show, please subscribe, hit the notification button so you know what I'm up to. Yesterday, I reported that Joe Biden had lifted 26 federal laws in order to speed up the construction of a wall along southwest Texas. I said it was a waste of money and that it perpetuated the myth that walls work. And even worse, Uh, It perpetuates the myth that we should be keeping these migrants out. We should be welcoming these migrants. We need them. Our population is decreasing. We have jobs that go unfilled. They, They pay into Social Security. They keep our social safety net and our economy afloat. So I was a little critical of President Biden for cooperating with this Racism, let's call it what it is, stupidity. Well, during a press gaggle in the Oval Office on Thursday, Biden clarified that he had no choice, that the money had already been allocated for building the wall, and it would have been illegal for him not to spend the money that has been allocated by Congress for this wall. He said it was his job as president to waive these 25 federal laws in order to perform his constitutional duty of making sure the money gets spent. Here he is 
explaining. I'll answer one question on the border wall. The border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. I can't stop that. So he, he had to spend the money. Then he was asked, will the wall work? Do you believe the border wall works? No. That's him being honest. This is Joe Biden sitting in his Oval Office where he keeps a bust of Bobby Kennedy, who for Biden is the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. So I want to correct something I said on the show yesterday. But first, I've shown these pictures before. It's Bobby Kennedy when he was a United States senator touring Appalachia back in February of 1968 just a few months before he was gunned down. He wasn't coming there for votes. He was running for president, but he was coming to draw attention to poverty right here in America. He saw the bloated bellies of American children, and they were photographed, and Americans were shocked. He went inside the homes. He broke bread with them and talked to mothers barely scraping by, And he made it clear that America's war on poverty, launched by President Lyndon Johnson only a few years earlier, had much further to go. These are iconic photographs of what could have been. President Johnson waged a war on poverty, and he lifted millions of Americans up and into the middle class through programs like Head Start, food stamps, Medicare, and Medicaid. Much the same way Joe Biden lifted 3 million American children out of poverty in 2021 when he expanded the child tax credit. The Republicans refused to let it continue in 2022, and so childhood poverty has doubled thanks to Republicans in the Senate. On yesterday's show, I made a mistake. I was talking about the power of the Speaker, the power of Congress. And I said that in 1994, Newt Gingrich became the first Republican Speaker in nearly 40 years, and that Bill Clinton got scared. And I made the mistake of saying that he passed welfare reform in anticipation of the Gingrich revolution. I was wrong. Bill Clinton passed welfare reform two years later in 1996, when he was running for re-election and was what they called back then triangulating, trying to be half a Democrat and half a Republican, trying to pull away from Democrats in the House and appeal to conservative centrists to make him look like a Reagan Democrat. So I got the years wrong. It was 1996. But the Gingrich Revolution started in 94 and... Clinton was somewhat irrelevant. He could only enact what Newt Gingrich wanted, like welfare reform. Here is Bill Clinton falsely invoking the memory of Bobby Kennedy to do precisely what Bobby Bobby Kennedy would never have approved of, work requirements for welfare. We all know that there are a lot of good people on welfare who 
just get off of it in the ordinary course of business, but that a significant number of people are trapped on welfare for a very long time, exiling them from the entire community of work that gives structure to our lives. Nearly 30 years ago, Robert Kennedy said, work is the meaning of what this country is all about. We need it as individuals. We need to sense it in our fellow citizens. And we need it as a society and as a people. He was right then. Yeah, that's shameful. Talk about people trapped on welfare as though uh, taking them off welfare is going to free them, making them work is going to free them. Well, to Clinton's credit, he did make up a little for his welfare reform. It wasn't really reform. He just got rid of it for a lot of people. To his credit, however, he was the first president to really make significant use of the child tax credit, the same tax credit that Joe Biden used to lift millions of children out of poverty in 2021. But the child tax credit is prose. It's not poetry, as New York Governor Mario Cuomo used to say, right? You can't run on the child tax credit. It's not poetry. It's prose. Nobody knows what the child tax credit means. You can run on cutting welfare. That's poetry. Reagan made cutting welfare poetic. Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson made expanding welfare poetic. Child tax credit, it works. It's not poetry. Nixon codenamed it Operation Linebacker. It was 200 American B-52s dropping 20,000 tons of bombs on North Vietnam during a 12-day period in December of 1972. Nixon called it Operation Linebacker, but it's remembered as the Christmas bombings of Hanoi, Hanoi, North Vietnam. 1,600 Vietnamese civilians civilians were killed, and it was the idea of Nixon's national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. Kissinger said the bombardment would shake Vietnam to its core and drag them to the negotiating table, even though they already were at the negotiating table. David Kissinger is a, oh, that's his son who works in television. Um, Henry Kissinger. David Kissinger is his son who trades on his father's name in television. Uh, David Kissinger's father, Henry Kissinger, is a war criminal. Cambodia, Laos, and Indonesia, and of course the assassination of Allende in Chile in order to install General Pinochet, a fascist leader who promised to implement the economic policies outlined by Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Anti-Government Free Market Hucksters. Uh, Kissinger's still alive. He's 100 because God and Satan don't want him. Vox's Jonathan Geyer, not Fox, Vox, Vox's Jonathan Geyer caught up with the war criminal Henry Kissinger right after the war criminal spoke before the Council on Foreign Relations. Let's take a look. Dr. Kissinger, it's also 50 years since Pinochet. 
Do you have any reflections no, on Pinochet? Thank you very much. I'm a member of the press, That's a member fine. of the council. I'm sure you are, but we're trying to get him in his car. Dr. Kissinger, stuff. any Thank comments on much. Cambodia, Laos, five decades later? A lot of alleged war crimes have been documented by historians and reporters. Dr. Kissinger, 50 years since Pinochet. Any comment on 50 years since the the military junta empowered in Chile? We have privilege to speak with you about some of the uh, allegations regarding Pinochet. Good work. Well, it's been nearly a year since the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, purchased Twitter, fired its election integrity monitors, and reinstated the accounts of racists, rapists, Nazis, anti-Semites, and other assorted spokespeople for the Republican Party. Reuters reports that ad revenue has decreased every single month since Musk took over. Musk has acknowledged that his social platform is bleeding money and is blaming the Jews. Seriously, Musk is blaming the Anti-Defamation League for calling Twitter out for all the uh, for its dramatic increase in posts that promote racism, bigotry, misogyny, anti-Semitism and rape. Musk has even talked about suing the Anti-Defamation League for using their First Amendment rights to point out what a hateful zoo of sewer rats Twitter has been turned into. According to Reuters, Musk paid more than $40 billion for Twitter. Twitter is now estimated to be worth $8 billion. On Thursday, the SEC announced it will be suing Elon Musk in order to force him to comply with their request for to answer questions that he refuses to answer as to how he took Twitter, which was then a publicly traded company, how he took it private. Mike Lindell is the poorest man in the world. He has dedicated his life, his money, his company, and his reputation to Donald Trump. And that can only mean one thing, he's bankrupt. Because Lindell went all in on Trump. He went all in on Trump's phony election integrity nonsense after the 2020 elections. He's being sued by two voting machine companies, Dominion and Smartmatic. He's being sued for defamation. These lawsuits are expensive, and they're a lot. He's also being sued for defamation by several of the individuals who worked for these voting companies. It's kind of sad to see, uh, to watch a man who loves Donald Trump so much. I mean, he really loved Donald Trump. In fact, right after the 2020 elections, Mike Lindell met in the Oval Office to help push the idea of Donald Trump declaring martial law and seizing the voting machines. I mean, that's how much he loved Donald Trump. You would think members of the legal profession, there would be some Republicans who love Donald Trump just as much as Mike Lindell does and that they would support this guy, but no, no. So Mike Lindell can't afford lawyers anymore. And they said, bye-bye, we're not representing you. This is very sad. Here is Mike Lindell on Steve Bannon's podcast talking about his penury. 
all the lawyers we have for my pillow and uh, myself in the lawsuits with the lawfare with Dominion and Smartmatic, they uh, just filed in federal court that uh, to drop uh, to drop us as our attorneys, and um, and this comes from. Uh, the lawfare, basically, and from the media, the attacks on my pillow, what American Express did, uh, t- take just devastating our credit, and we, I, we have to, I, I can't pay the lawyers. We can't pay. There's no money left to pay them. It's sad to to take this guy to sue my pillow. What are your thoughts, Mike Lindell, about suing my pillow? How dare him come and sue my pillow? How dare him? How dare him? And any messages for Donald Trump? Kiss my ass. Really? Because the man refuses to give you any money to help with your your legal fees. Is that why? How dare him? How dare him not give you any money? How dare him? (laughs) How dare him? Mike, uh, I know you're upset. Did it ever occur to you that maybe you bet the wrong horse? You're an asshole, Mike, is what you are. Mike, no, sorry. he's an asshole. Okay, sorry, I didn't want to upset you. Meanwhile, according to Donald Trump's recent financial disclosures with the Federal Elections Commission, Trump claims, but he would never lie, he claims to have raised $45 million in the past three months, nearly, nearly tripling Governor Ron DeSantis's take. DeSantis is sinking in the polls. A new one this week shows former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley passing him by in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley is now coming in second. The $45 million that Trump reports is a little bit suspect because it's coming from Donald Trump. And the campaign isn't clarifying how much of that money was given to Trump's official campaign committee and how much was given to one of his super PACs, which he drains for his legal fees. But the Trump campaign insists it now has $37 million in its war chest. But nobody is sure what that war chest actually is. Is it for buying ads, setting up a ground game in New Hampshire and Iowa, or paying your lawyers and the vig on what you borrowed from the Russian mobsters. His RICO trial down in Georgia begins October 23rd with lawyers Kenneth Cheesebro and Sidney Powell. That's trial starts with those two, and they've been filing motions all week to get their charges dismissed, all to no avail. Kenneth Cheesebro on Thursday filed a motion to dismiss his case, insisting that one of the prosecutors in his trial is a recent hire and when filling out his paperwork didn't say whether or not he had been officially sworn in as a Fulton Fulton County prosecutor. Cheesebro's lawyers argue that this prosecutor, therefore, is illegitimate since he has been working on the case without proof that he ever swore an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States in Georgia. That's according to Kenneth Cheesebro and his lawyers who tried to take a massive dump on the constitutions of Georgia 
and the United States. Well, Donald Trump has had such a busy week, he's paring back on his lawsuits. And Thursday, he announced that he would no longer be suing his old attorney, Michael Cohen, for $500 million. Cohen is, uh, if you remember, he's uh, turned state's evidence and is testifying against Trump in the New York State civil trial where Trump has already been found guilty of fraud. Trump is essentially suing Michael Cohen for testifying against him in a case where he's accused of inflating his properties by 2,500%. And when you sue your former attorney for $500 million, it kind of sends a signal that you tend to exaggerate. Lawyers handling Trump's criminal trial in Washington, D.C. on charges of election interference filed a motion with the presiding judge, Tanya Chutkin, to have all these charges dismissed. They cited presidential immunity, non-existent presidential immunity, doesn't exist. Trump's lawyers argued, however, that any crimes Trump is accused of were committed while he was president and presidents are immune from criminal prosecution for anything they do as president. It's not true. Presidents are immune from civil prosecution for any damages they may have caused while they were president, but they are not immune from civil prosecution for any damages they caused before they were president, which is why Paula Jones was able to sue Bill Clinton for sexual harassment while he was president because he harassed her while he was governor of Arkansas. Now, Clinton lied under oath during his deposition for the civil suit while he was president, and that is criminal. It's why he was impeached, and theoretically, Bill Clinton could have been tried after he left office for lying under oath while he was president. They took away his law license for a couple of years. It's the reason Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, because after you're president, you can be sued in a criminal court. So the judge is not going to dismiss the lawsuit based on non-existent presidential immunity. Donald Trump has also been charged by the Manhattan DA with forging business records and violating campaign finance law when he paid hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels in the run-up to the 2016 presidential campaign, presidential election. On Thursday, Trump's lawyers once again filed a motion to have those charges dismissed, calling it a meandering trial, accusing the DA of dragging his feet and taking way too long to decide whether or not to prosecute the former president. They say it's unfair. So unfair. And his lawyers also filed a motion this week with Judge Eileen Cannon down in Florida to have his federal trial for mishandling classified documents pushed back until after the 2024 presidential elections. A lot of lawsuits, right? Remember, he's being... uh, He was criminally indicted for mishandling classified documents. Well, it gets worse. ABC News revealed on Thursday that right after leaving office, Donald Trump shared top secret information 
about America's fleet of nuclear-powered subs with Anthony Pratt, an Australian billionaire who runs one of the world's largest cardboard companies. Pratt is believed to be one of the 90 witnesses special counsel Jack Smith is expected to bring before the jury when Donald Trump goes on trial for violating the Espionage Act. Pratt, the Australian billionaire, was told all about the submarines at Mar-a-Lago because Pratt is a member of Mar-a-Lago and Donald Trump was trying to impress him and keep him as a member of Mar-a-Lago. Now, Mar-a-Lago is a private club, and in order to be a member, you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then you pay annual dues. As a member, you end up owning a little piece of the club. This is something that Trump never discusses about Mar-a-Lago. He's not only borrowed against it, he doesn't own it outright. The members also own a little piece of it. But Trump doesn't matter because Trump can never sell it. He can claim it's worth a billion dollars. It's not zoned for commercial real estate. It's not zoned for anything other than what it is. You cannot subdivide. And that's why it's valued at roughly $20 million. Okay? And that's what Trump agreed to. He signed the tax documents with the the appraiser, the Palm Beach appraiser. It's an historical landmark. There's nothing you can do with it other than enjoy the beauty. Mar-a-Lago is worth $1 billion, the same way Central Park in Manhattan is worth $10 trillion. Okay? The city cannot sell Central Park. Uh, They're not allowed to. Theoretically, if the whole system collapsed, then it would be worth $10 trillion. The same way if the whole system collapsed, yes, Mar-a-Lago could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But the system hasn't collapsed, and he can't sell it for what he claims it's worth. But... But he's borrowed money against it, right? Central Park uh, is not worth anything to New York City. You can say it's the land is worth $10 trillion, but you cannot use it as collateral when you borrow from the banks. But that's exactly what Donald Trump has been found guilty of doing, borrowing against Mar-a-Lago claiming it's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's fraud, I think. That's the word. So Jared Moskowitz is a Democrat from Florida. And since Donald Trump is insisting that Mar-a-Lago is worth a billion dollars, maybe two billion dollars, Congressman Moskowitz thinks, hey, the tax assessor should be informed This is the letter that Congressman Jared Moskowitz wrote to Dorothy Jacks. She's the Palm Beach County property appraiser. Dear uh, Appraiser Jacks, as I'm sure you are aware, your valuation of Mar-a-Lago has been cited in Judge Arthur Angeron's determination this week 
that former President Donald Trump and the Trump Organization committed fraud by inflating the value of their assets between 2011 and 2021. You valued the Mar-a-Lago property between $18 million and $28 million. Last week, Donald Trump posted the following on Truth Social. Quote, this highly partisan Democrat judge just ruled that Mar-a-Lago was worth just $18 million when, in fact, it may be worth 100 times that amount. And then Eric Trump also posted a tweet saying it was worth $2 billion. Uh, Mar-a-Lago was listed as worth $490 million in financial documents given to banks. If the property value of Mar-a-Lago is so much higher than it was appraised, will you be amending the property value in line with the Trump family's belief that the property is worth well over a billion dollars? I thank you for your time and consideration and look forward to a prompt response. Sincerely, Jared Moskowitz, member of Congress. He's part of the Florida delegation. He wants to see if he can get some more money in the the coffers. So things are getting really bad for Donald Trump. Uh, The judge in this fraud case says by October 16th, every single piece of property that Donald Trump owns has to go into receivership. He has to dissolve the hundreds of shell companies, limited liability companies he created. And before appeal, he has to give up these properties. And Donald Trump, and I played this clip two days ago or yesterday, Donald Trump is standing in front of the courthouse doors, insisting all my properties are worth a hundred times what what they say they are. Mar-a-Lago is worth two billion. Trump Tower is worth, you know, whatever. But even if it's not, even if I lied, which I didn't, he talks about the this clause. Another thing, we have a clause in the contract which tells essentially buyer beware. The contract is very, very, if you take a look and you speak to the banks, and you will, I hope you speak to the banks because the banks got paid in full. I hope you speak to the banks. But we have a clause in the contract. It's like a buyer beware clause. It says when you take a look at the financial statement, don't believe anything you read. This is up front. Don't believe anything you read. Some people call it a worthless clause because it makes the statement and anything you read in the statement worthless. It says go out and do your own research. Go out and do your own due diligence. You have to study the statement carefully. Do not believe anything. In fact, it's so strong that people read it and they don't even accept it. They don't even want it. They don't even use it. It's called a disclaimer clause. It's very common. If you put it in, if you don't have time to do statements, or even if you do have time, people like to have it. This is what's called a full disclaimer. We disclaim the financial statements. But even with a full disclaimer, which immediately takes you out of any fraud situation and any litigation. 
he just gets it in his head that there's such thing as a disclaimer clause and that you could pretty much write down whatever you want on your financial disclosures and it's buyer beware. You don't need to believe anything you see here. He's just decided that because one of his shysters 30 years ago told him that. This is the ruling from the judge when he put all the properties into receivership. This is what the judge wrote. And this is what's driving Trump so crazy. So during the deposition, the New York attorney general asked, so am I understanding that you didn't particularly care about what was in the statement of financial condition? Donald J. Trump, I didn't get involved in it very much. I, I felt it was a meaningless document other than it was almost a list of my properties with good faith effort of people trying to put some value down. It was a good faith effort, right? So this is, the judge cited this in his ruling. And then the judge writes, in a sworn deposition, Donald Trump spent a lot of time invoking this clause, quote, well, they call it a disclaimer. They call it a worthless clause too, because it makes the statement worthless, unquote. The judge writes, Donald Trump goes on to say that, quote, I have a clause in there that says, don't believe the statement. Go out and do your own work. This statement is worthless. It means nothing. Furthermore, Donald Trump implies that he did not consider it important to review the SFCs for accuracy for existence of this purported worthless clause. Okay. Uh, the, the SFC is a statement of financial condition. It's your financials, okay? This is what the judge writes in his ruling. Thus, the worthless clause does not say what defendants say it says, does not rise to the level of an enforceable disclaimer, and cannot be used to insulate fraud as to facts peculiarly within defendants' knowledge even vis-a-vis -vis sophisticated recipients. That made sense when I was reading it the first time. Uh, I had no idea what he was writing there. However, defendants' reliance on these worthless disclaimers is worthless. The clause does not use the words worthless or useless or ignore or disregard or any similar words. It does not say the values herein are what I think the properties will be worth in 10 or more years. Indeed, the quoted language uses the word current no less than five times and the word future zero times. And that was the ruling that said, dissolve all your limited liability corporations here in the state of New York, put your properties into receivership. It's time to start selling them off. Now, Trump is going to appeal the ruling, but uh, it looks like he has to hand over his companies and put them in receivership. Before I go, on the campaign trail on Thursday, Chris Christie talks about the first time he uh, talked to Donald Trump as governor of New Jersey. This was like back in 2010. And Christie said New Jersey had some financial problems. And <laughs> Donald Trump said to him, why don't you declare bankruptcy? And Chris Christie said, we're not allowed to. It's in our Constitution. We're not allowed. The state of New Jersey 
cannot declare bankruptcy. We have to pay back what we owe. And Chris Christie, this is from the campaign trail on Thursday. He said, they'll sue you by the time the case gets resolved in court two or three years later. Everyone will have forgotten about it. And this is Donald Trump who ended up becoming president. Well, let me just check in with my girlfriend because she's been very depressed. Uh, hi, honey. I'm all finished with the show. Yay. Mm-hmm. You're still depressed. Well, I think I'm going to crawl into bed with you right now, okay? Yay. Okay, w- would you like me to uh, to cuddle? Maybe we can spoon? Yay. Oh, you're, you're excited about that. Do, do you really mean that? Yay. Oh. I, 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 you know, I love you. Yay. Even though you're depressed, I, I still love you. Yay. Do you love me? Do you? Yay. Oh, okay. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Please share this with your friends. Please. Thank you for listening. 